Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to not just sit around and think about uh, what on earth is going to happen in the next year, and instead concentrate on studying for his comprehensive exams. So today I'm going to be trying to give a big overview of one of my lists, my list on the connection between environmental history and urban history. And this has been actually really hard for me. I've uh, tried to record this episode last night and I kept on starting and stopping and starting and stopping and my notes, even though they're detailed, just led me into these meandering labyrinths of mumbling about, you know, Anthropocene and stuff like that. But I think that it's really important. Now, it's it's funny. It's funny that I'm having such trouble giving a big general overview of this list in particular, because I think that of all of my lists, this one is probably the one that I am most likely to end up teaching. I mean, I'm definitely, if I ever, you know, get a job, I'm definitely going to be teaching some kind of British history survey. But I think that I'm also probably very likely to make some kind of course about how the modern world and the environment and urban culture all interact. That when I get into a job interview, this is what they're going to ask me. They're going to say, okay, tell me about the classes that you want to teach. And I'm going to go, well, I have this great idea for a course that combines urban history, environmental history, material history, and history of everyday life. And they're going to look at me and they're going to nod and go, okay, tell us about it. And then I'm going to give them this podcast. So let's get started and hopefully it'll be coherent, unlike how it was last night. So... I want to tell a story about uh, environmental history that helps us explain the current predicament about global warming, but that also lets us see uh, both cultural, individual, and species history. Last episode, I talked about the problem with environmental histories that you know want to tell a story about global warming, uncomfortably edging out the individual from the story. This class is my pitch on how we can bring the individual back in. And we do that through telling histories of consumption, the urban environment, and everyday life. Now, at the heart of it, it's the idea that part of the problem is that history as it's been done for the past hundred years is not great at telling the stories between human and non-human interaction. So there's a lot of reasons why. I mean, part of us is, you know, reacting to the crude materialism of the bad old days of Marxism and modernization. In these views, one of the big, you know, missing pieces of modern life was factories and cities, a lot like my story right now. But for these two big ideologies that dominated scholarship in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and even 70s, that's all that there was. When you got factories, you then got capitalism, democracy, freedom, liberty. They went hand in hand together. There wasn't much room for the kind of messy, contingent history that we like today. And it's also true that we don't like to tell these stories because of the long history of what the social sciences and the humanities actually stand for. You know, in the beginning of the 20th century, when the disciplines were disaggregating themselves, one of the things that history and sociology and psychology 
did is they said, look, we are not the natural sciences. The natural sciences might tell long-term stories about like evolution or about coal, but we study people. We look at the, you know, agency of individuals who are moving through the world trying to change stuff. We look at Napoleon and Marx and the working classes. We look at how people change the world. And because of that, we have not developed as rich a set of methodologies to discuss how people are changing the world through deep interactions with, uh, you know, bacteria and resources and drugs. And this is an oversight, especially in my view of modernity, what really changes are new kinds of circulation between people and networks and objects. It's about, you know, uh, coffee beans in hemp bags going on ships across the Atlantic Ocean. It's about miners in the north of England going into mines that are being pumped of water from steam engines and then mining coal to bring up to feed the steam engines and other steam engines. It's about those steam engines using rotary power to make uh, cotton into a thread that is then woven with more rotary power that's then made into cloth that is uh, put onto wagons and shipped to stores that's bought by women, that's cut by women, that's sewn by women, that's worn by men who go out into the street and wear these things on their bodies as badges of their male status. It's the deep interaction between all of these things moving around where they're constantly being given cultural uh tags and constantly bumping up against the everyday fact of their thingness. And to tell this story requires us to jump around in scale. It requires us to tell stories about everyday life, and it requires us to tell stories about large-scale changes of circulation. And it requires us to tell the stories of ecological change. It requires us to tell the long-term history of why uh, there are different types of plants on different continents, why uh, cotton in South America and North America was better for uh, machine sewing and weaving than cotton in Africa and Asia. And when we do this, which I've been attempting to do for all of these podcasts, but when we do this, I think that we gain another kind of perspective on the old story of modernization and the rise of the West. Far be it from being caused by any great mental shift. This is not a story of European genius. Far be it from being caused either by particularly wonderful institutions or particularly evil institutions. This is not a story of, you know, the uh, victory of capitalism because of property rights, and neither is it a story of the victory of capitalism because of warfare and evil. When I look at this, what I see is that uh, Europe won because of a confluence of factors. Big one is that they had a lot of coal. And the second big one is that Europe sat between three world systems, the Americas, Africa, and Eurasia. And being at the center of this network gave it power. It gave it power to establish particular kinds of roles and basically skim off the top of what the modern world would be. 
they were in a privileged network position. And you can see this through the story of financial capitalism. You can see this by looking more concretely at where these things are going. Everything goes to London, an entrepot of trade, where uh, the products of the world are packaged and sorted and re-exported. And these packages are, you know, bought based on financial transactions that happen within the square mile of the city of London. These ships are insured based on commercial paper bought and sold in London. The decisions are made by people walking around in London and talking to each other in coffee houses there. The fashions that the men of the world wear to show that they are solid businessmen are the fashions that are popular within this square mile of London. And so it's my hope that by telling the everyday history of these cities, of these big cities, particularly London, that we can see more clearly the weird and non-human story of modernity that we are enmeshed in. So I think that we can tell this story maybe most clearly through my discussion of the changes in the night. So before the modern era, the night was a separate realm of being. At nighttime, uh, places that in the day were uh, public, safe, places of concourse and congress like markets and crossroads, in the night became no longer the property of the community. They became dangerous, liminal. They were the realm of uh, witches and wolves and ghosts and highwaymen. At night, people had to lock their doors. They had to tend to their fires and worry about light. They went to bed and wrapped up against the cold. However, as people started to move into cities and get more uh, opportunity to get things, the night was beaten back a little. It was beaten back by tallow candles made from the fat of cows. It was beaten back by rushes dipped in fat that people would light. It was beaten back by poor link boys who would wait outside of inns where drunken men would stumble out and need a light home. But this was only available to the richest, to the people who could actually afford to buy the light. For most other people, most people, the night was a place that was still scary. And because humans are humans, the rich then loved the night. They celebrated it. The Baroque rulers would show their power over day and night by making processions in which they uh, amply illuminated the night with, with candles and burning brands, showing that they had the power to turn night into day. And rich people hung out at night in glimmering ballrooms lit by candles that were trimmed by servants. They worked all night and they slept through the day. Light became more public by a number of factors. First was uh, a, 
attempt to make the cities, especially the capital cities of Europe, beautiful and glimmering to show the power of the state. In the same way that the Baroque ruler showed his individual power through having his personal parties illuminated, so too did the modern state attempt to show its power over the natural world by illuminating its crowning cities. Paris became the city of lights, not just because it's a nice pretty word, but because it paid a lot of money to make lamplights and employ lamplighters to make the streets not dark anymore. London did it, of course, in a different way. It was far more local. Local authorities would tax the ratepayers so that they would be able to buy streetlights. And these streetlights were lit physically every night by lamplighters who would walk from lamp to lamp with a long torch. Some scientific advancements, uh, notably the discovery that burning actually happens through a thing, which they called at the time phlogiston, but we now know as oxygen, allowed people to improve lamps uh, and look for new fuel sources. This led in the 19th century to better kinds of lamps and lights. Instead of just having a a candle which was smoky and you needed to trim, in the 19th century people developed uh, new kinds of, of lighting, um, most notably whale oil lighting, which you could imagine was pure. It shone a deep, white, crisp light. It did not need much tending. It didn't smell. It didn't smoke. Later on, people developed central illumination through gas works, where coal was heated up so that the volatile chemicals, uh, coal gas, would re get released and then were collected and then were piped through people's houses and lit through central, uh, 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 central mains. And in this way, the darkness was beaten back. People did seem to have control over the night itself. It allowed people to imagine that the world could be conquered, that there would be a freedom from individual constraints, that we could stay up as long as we wanted to, that we could do work at night, that you could have factories that could continually produce things throughout the entire day, stopping only so that the workers could swap in and out, stopping only so that the machines could get repaired, stopping not for coal or for darkness or for rain. It allowed us to imagine that. But in imagining this, we of course forget that all of the stuff that helps illuminate the night comes from outside of the city, outside of this system. The night is chased back because coal is mined in the north, because whales are attacked in the Atlantic Ocean. The night is beaten back because we are stealing energy from the past and using it now to light our interiors. And despite this hope of turning the night into an eternal day, it doesn't work. Humans are animals and we need to sleep. We might, like undergrads, force ourselves to push ourselves to stay awake for as much as we can, but it doesn't work in the end. We need the same amount of sleep as we always did. Now maybe, these days, we can ignore the changes in lights because of the seasons, but we cannot ignore the fact that when it gets dark we get tired. We chase away the tiredness with electric lights and with TV and with coffee, but we can never chase it away completely. 
These natural desires, these natural needs are always, always just one step away, just outside, just a quick drive away from the city. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of Historian. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, ask me a question on Twitter, at MackieTeacher, M-A-C-K-I-E-T-E-A-C-H-E-R. Thanks very much to Duncan Barton for the image, and thanks very much to Jonathan Lear for the music. I'll be back this afternoon where I will be talking more about energy and society. See you then.